Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. This week, we talk with Alan Krupnik, a senior fellow, and Daniel Sullivan, a fellow at RFF. I'll talk to Alan and Dan about their recent study using satellite data to better measure air pollution in the United States. I'll ask them about what their new study finds, what the implications are for public health, and how policymakers might respond. Stay with us. Okay, Dan Sullivan and Alan Krupnik, my friends and colleagues, thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. Happy to be here. Great. So today we're going to talk a little bit about a recent paper that you two co-authored. It's an RFF working paper um, published in September 2018 called Using Satellite Data to Fill the Gaps in the U.S. Air Pollution Monitoring Network. So we're going to get into that in just a minute. But first, so listeners know where you're coming from. Can you each tell us just briefly how you got interested in energy and the environment in the first place? Well, uh Of course, I'm uh, pretty old at this point, so uh, I got into it (laughs) when I was uh, in graduate school at the University of Maryland, and uh, the the environmental economics revolution was just beginning, and uh, this seemed like a a great area uh, for me, uh, thinking about pollution and its effect on health and the environment. Um, it was really the early days of the environmental movement and uh, the early days of economists working in the environment. So I've been interested in it for almost 40 years now. So I actually have a similar story where I was in grad school at Harvard and I was actually doing more urban labor economics and I came across some interesting problems of you know using house values to measure uh, how people value clean air and other environmental amenities. And just kind of went down a rabbit hole of a lot of interesting topics and questions of you know, how do we measure air pollution? What are the particular spatial data problems uh, inherent to this field? And actually that has led right into this research we're going to talk about today. That's great. So um, so, so let's get into it. Um, the, the paper that we're going to talk about um, uses satellite data, as the title tells us, and it's part of uh, something called the Valuables Consortium. Uh, can you tell us briefly about the Valuables Consortium and how this paper and the techniques you're using sort of fit into that network? NASA, National Aeronautic and Space Administration, was interested in showing the world really how valuable its research is and its satellites are. So uh, we have a big project with NASA to work with scientists at NASA uh, to help them show how valuable the information is that they generate through satellites and other, other programs. So our project fits right into that because we're using uh, NASA satellites to do this work. The value of information problem is really tricky because it's, you know, how does access to this information change policymakers, uh, how they approach problems, the the decisions they make, the options they face. You know, what's the value of improving the resolution of surface temperature from 10 meters to 5 meters? That's a tricky question. And so that's why they've brought us on board to try to put some structure to that question. So this kind of research, it can help policymakers decide how much is it worth investing in certain new satellite technologies or how much should we spend to improve 
our existing capabilities, measuring the the potential benefits that we could experience on Earth from those those investments. Is that right? Exactly. And so, you know, launching a new satellite that's measuring something we haven't measured before, you know, is going to have a huge benefit. Launching a whole new satellite to, with a new instrument to slightly improve something we already have, you know, we can put numbers on that and it may pass cost benefit, may not. Right. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So a couple terms that uh, that are crucial for the paper um, that I want us to define uh, so that we all know what uh, what we're talking about. So national ambient air quality standards, we're, we'll probably call those NACs as we go through our conversation. Um, can you, uh, either of you guys, just tell us, you know, what are NACs, how do they fit into the Clean Air Act, and, uh, and how are they measured uh, in different parts of the United States? Sure. So the Clean Air Act mandates that the U.S. EPA set uh, ambient air quality standards for a variety of pollutants. One of them is uh, fine particles with uh, a diameter of 2.5 microns or less. Right. And that's the PM 2.5 that we'll be referring to. Yeah, that's PM 2.5. And then uh, those standards are supposed to be protective of health with a margin of safety. So this has been going on since the Clean Air Act was passed in around 1970. Uh, The standards are revised periodically. All the health literature is closely looked at. And then there's a decision made by the administrator at EPA on what the new standards uh, should be in that subject to public comment and so on, the way any regulation is. So these concentrations of PM 2.5 are measured throughout the country according to a set of rules, and they're measured by ground-based monitors. And there's a set of rules about where, in general, those monitors should be located. And the states are supposed to follow those rules and put monitors in uh, where Uh, they think there are problems like high air pollution levels. And then that data is processed. And if if an area is found to have concentrations that exceed the standard, uh, then that area is designated as being in non-attainment, as violating, but the term of art is non-attainment, in non-attainment of the ambient air quality standard for that particular pollutant. And if it's Mm -hmm. there their concentrations are below that standard, then they're termed as being in attainment of the uh, National Ambient Air Quality Standard. And then if you're in, I guess there's one more piece, if you're in non-attainment of the standard, then you're subject to uh, regulations and requirements that you get into attainment with the standard over a period of time. So you have pollution control requirements to try to get you into attainment. Right. So we have these monitors around the country. They're measuring various things in the air. PM 2.5 is what we'll be focused on in our conversation today, uh, even though you know there are monitors for, for other pollutants as well. Um, just really quickly, what are some of the main sources of PM 2.5 and what are some of the health impacts that it has um, you know, at, at various concentrations? So... PM 2.5 is primarily what's called the secondary pollutant. Uh, There are some direct pollution from PM 2.5, let's say from diesel engines in cars or or motors in industry and and so on. These are very fine particulates that are emitted directly into the air. But most PM 2.5 is a combination of uh, nitrogen dioxide or nitrogen oxides 
and sulfur oxides in combination with actually ammonia that's in the air. And so these react to create a weak sulfuric acid and a weak nitric acid. And those are called uh, aerosols and they're in the air. And when those aerosols are breathed in, they affect health. They affect the, the functioning of the lungs and statistical analyses of the, that relate the concentrations of PM 2.5 in the air with the health of the population experiencing those levels of PM 2.5 showed that there are pretty significant effects of PM 2.5 on health. And in fact, high concentrations of PM 2.5 can lead to premature death. This is the m biggest, most worrisome effect of PM 2.5, obviously. Uh, and that's why we focused on this pollutant. Yeah, and I, I want to reiterate that we're still even finding out more and more direct health effects uh, from PM25. So there's a recent research out of Arizona State University that finds pretty convincingly that a significant portion of Alzheimer's and dementia cases in the United States are explained by PM25. And the biological mechanism through which that happens is that so, so 2.5 microns is really, really small. It's much smaller than the width of a human hair. And when you breathe this stuff in through your nose, it actually travels through the olfactory nerve in your nose straight into your brain and gets lodged there. So this isn't organic material. It's to think of it as just gunk. And then your immune system tries to attack it because it's this foreign substance in your brain and it ends up creating lesions in your brain because your immune system attacks this stuff, can't kill it, and just keeps throwing, you know, white blood cells and whatever at it. And those have been found right. in Alzheimer's patients in, in postmortems. You go into these uh, lesions that have been for a long time associated with Alzheimer's, get in the middle of these lesions, and you find PM25. So scary stuff. Yeah, right. it's really, really big stuff. Uh, you yeah. get in your, and the, the premature death is mostly caused by, well, one, the Alzheimer's dementia, but when this stuff gets into your lungs, it's like what you're walking on a treadmill all day uphill. You know, it, it makes it harder to breathe. It puts a stress on your system, mm -hmm. both the, the day that you experience it and potentially several days afterwards. Those are the direct right. health effects. So as Alan said, serious stuff to be sure. And so, so despite this, the seriousness of this uh, pollutant, when, you know, reading the first part of your paper, one of the points you make is that the monitoring networks that we have for measuring the concentrations of PM 2.5 are, um, are, you know, not comprehensive, uh, is, is maybe a charitable way to put it. So, you know, one data point that stuck out to me in the paper is that um, in 2015, 79% of counties in the United States did not have a monitor. Uh, for PM 2.5. Can you talk a little bit about the gaps in our current monitoring protocols and how, you know, these new satellite data improve upon that? The main thing with the monitors is they're just really expensive. These regulatory grade monitors. So you can't just use any off the shelf, you know, $100 monitor and expect it to withstand scrutiny in courts. So, so these uh, regulations can negatively impact businesses. And so you can't, in a sense, frivolously harm businesses by using, you know, inaccurate instruments. So to withstand that scrutiny, you have to have really right. quality monitors. Now, those become really expensive. And that, I think, is the primary reason why there, we don't have more monitors. The other reason is that it's actually a big political question about where you put monitors and how many. 
because these monitors can make life difficult for local politicians, for local regulators, uh, and for the profits of local businesses. So there's actually been in the news for a while now, there's an ozone monitor in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, that is perennially puts it out of, uh, puts it into non-attainment and not the scientific community or the regulators, but the state legislature has been pushing for a long time to try to shut this ozone monitor down uh, and thereby make it easier for them to become uh, attainment. I mean, it's a really hard problem. If you don't have something like satellite data, how do you know where to put the monitors in yeah. the first place? Yeah. So, you know, right. you look around at your city and you think about, well, where might be, if you're doing your job, where might be the highest pollution levels? And, well, let's put a monitor there. But you don't actually know. And as Daniel suggested, it's subject to political pressure and even potentially manipulation. So what this research really does is kind of blows the lid off of that by using the satellite data to show where the hotspots actually are and compares that to where the ground-based monitors are. So let's, so let's talk about that. Where, what did you find when you compared the satellite data with the ground-based data? Where were some of those hotspots? And um, yeah, just, just talk about geographically and maybe demographically as well. Uh, where did you find some of the biggest differences? So what we do is we take the satellite data and what it tells us is for every square kilometer in the United States, what's the annual concentration? And then we overlay that with population data from the census. And then we ask, are there any counties? So the, the county is usually the unit of uh, jurisdiction used to determine compliance or non-compliance. Are there any counties that contain areas that if there was a monitor there, it would be flagged as non-attainment? And we looked at both counties that had no monitors and counties that did have monitors. And what we found was there are 24 million people that are classified officially as attaining the NACs, so not violating the, the Clean Air Act, but they were in fact contained areas that exceeded the NACs. Now, roughly half of those were in counties that didn't have monitors at all. So there was just, we didn't know what was going on there as far as the regulators were concerned. The other half, about 12 million, were in areas that contain monitors. And uh, what we found is that the monitors were placed kind of on the outskirts or kind of the edge of the hot zone. And so they were very close to the limit, but they weren't actually over the limit. And if you had moved those monitors slightly, you know, more downtown, basically, it would have picked it up. And so this is mostly in the Midwest. So this is uh, Chicago, Indianapolis, uh, Cincinnati, Louisville, Kentucky, some Houston and Texas, a couple borders, uh, border cities in Texas. Yeah, we have maps in the paper and we have a list of all the counties uh, as well. I think it's 56 counties in 11 states. Yeah. So for those of you following along at home, keeping score uh, in the back of the paper, if you look at figures four through six, you can see... Uh, some of these results and, and the counties that are affected uh, in a pretty, you know, really stark, uh, compelling way. All right. So, so we know some of these areas are classified as being an attainment when, when they probably should not. Um, you guys uh, did some calculations about the number of people that were affected and also the the, the value of the health damages uh, that we could expect uh, for these people that are affected. Can you talk a little bit about that? So when a county gets classified as non-attainment, 
they have to implement a number of measures to get themselves back in attainment. And you see the air quality in those areas improve. And so what we did is we took the actual non-attainment counties and looked at how their pollution improved over the you know following couple of years. And then we asked, what if these misclassified counties had also gotten that additional improvement in air quality, right? And so then we took that right. difference, applied it to the number of people that would have been affected, uh, used kind of standard numbers from the from prior research that say this is uh, how all-cause mortality in an area is impacted by PM 2.5, and then got the answer that across the country over the two years following the classification, approximately 5,500 people died that probably wouldn't have if they had that improved air quality. So if the counties that have high concentrations of PM 2.5, if they had taken the types of measures that counties that were recognized as being in non-attainment, if those if those places had taken those measures, we we could have seen a reduction in premature mortality right. of you know more than five thousand. Um, and then and then we apply the sort of value of statistical life uh, measures uh, to those deaths. It's like you have two drivers or two sets of cars, one set put on their seatbelt, and we see how much better off they fared. And then we pause it. What if these other people had put on their seatbelts as well? How many more people would have would have survived? Yeah. And then so again, so the in in kind of government accounting and policy accounting, we use this measure called the value of statistical life that basically equates like how much how much does this impact society? How much value does removing someone from society take from everyone else? And that value is approximately $9 million per life. It's the value of a statistical life. And so putting all that together, this misclassification costs society, the American people, about $50 billion. Wow. Okay. Uh, and, and for those of you who aren't familiar with the value of statistical life or VSL literature, there's a there's a deep and fascinating literature about how that number is calculated. So, um, you know, that's a that's a fun research topic to um, to explore if you're not familiar with it. So, last question on on this paper: What are some of the policy implications of what you found? So, um, how does the availability of this data affect the potential for either the federal government or state governments to adjust how it measures compliance. And have you spoken with any policymakers about that? Or do you think there's interest out there in using these types of data to create new metrics and, and measures? So in new actually, ways? to take your last question first, we have given presentations to people at the Environmental Protection Agency and at state agencies who are responsible for monitoring air pollution. Uh, this is pretty new type of information. Uh, and so it's going to take some time for this use of satellite data to kind of sink in to basically uh, almost 50 years now of using ground-based monitors to regulate air pollution in this country. Uh, so we're not going to see overnight penetration of these ideas into uh, regulatory behavior. But some people maybe listening to this uh, podcast would say, well, let's throw out all those monitors on the ground and just use satellites because you can't be manipulated and it gives you data all the time. And so we should do that. And and, and our paper and in our discussion with policymakers, uh, we do not push that idea. And the reason is, is that the ground-based monitors are 
quite accurate for what they're trying to do. And the uh, satellite data has holes in it because of you know cloudy days or rainy weather. Uh, the reflectivity of the land is different in different places and needs to be accounted for. The way you calibrate the conversion of aerosol optical death to PM 2.5 is problematic depending on the area that you're trying to calibrate for. Uh, you have to make sure these match up correctly. So what our primary uh, recommendation is, is that satellite data be used to supplement ground-based monitoring and in a particular way. So you take the satellite data, you look at where the hotspots might be, and then if you don't have a monitor there, you put one there and then uh, right. see what happens. And that seems like a relatively low cost strategy. You could actually move a monitor from one place with that where the satellite data say is not a problem and put it in another place where it is. So that would be very low cost as opposed to adding uh, additional monitors. So that's our basic policy thrust. Yeah, that makes sense. And it, it's fascinating, you know, that that some people might see these new types of data as a panacea to the problem of of measuring pollution, but but what you're saying is that um, it can be you know maybe a leading indicator uh, of something that's happening, and then and then you need additional tools to kind of ground truth what the satellites are telling that's us. That's a very good uh, phrase, ground truthing. All right. Well, I, I turned I turned the <laughs> phrase. Happy happy about that. Um, so. This is fascinating stuff. Thank you guys for uh, for joining us and telling us about about this work. So we're going to close out the show the same way that that we always close out uh, Resources Radio, which is asking our guests um, what's on the top of their reading stack. Uh, so what have you read or maybe listened to in a podcast or seen in a video recently that that you think listeners uh, of this podcast might be interested to know about? And this could be you know, a journal article, it could be a news story, it could be something happening in the policy world, uh, or anything else related to energy and environmental topics. So, uh, Dan or Alan, uh, what's on the top of your stack? So one thing that's really interested me is, you know, so we just had uh, the election not too long ago, and there are a number of climate and energy things on ballots in various states. And one thing that really interests me is the clean energy uh, propositions in Nevada and Arizona. The, the main components of both of those measures were to require state utilities to produce uh, at least 50% of their electricity from renewable sources by 2030. And there are some other details to each of the propositions as well. And the measure in Nevada passed and the measure in Arizona didn't. And without getting into the whys or whatever, that's just going to be really interesting to watch going forward how much the doom and gloom prophesied by utility companies of, oh, we are not going to be able to do that. Um, how much of that comes to pass and how easy that adjustment really is. I think it's going to, it's a, going to be a great incubator for uh, looking at these things going forward and, and maybe encouraging other states to uh, adopt similar measures or dissuading other states from making the same mistakes. Yeah, lots of fascinating results from, from the recent midterms. So, Alan, uh, what's at the top of your stack? Well, I have this huge stack. The Trump administration keeps adding layers to my stack every day. <laughs> but one of the things that I think is very important uh, in that stack is the idea of capturing CO2 coming out of smokestacks and coming out of uh, industrial processes and even coming directly out of the air and storing that permanently in the ground 
are in in products. So this is all called uh, by the name carbon capture, utilization and storage or CCUS. And uh, this is gaining currency very rapidly because it's not actually anathema to the Trump administration uh, because they're interested in making coal generation more viable uh, in a climate constrained world. And the way to do that is by having car carbon captured coming off of the smokestacks of electricity uh, generation units and putting it into the ground or into products. So what we're starting to see is an explosion of interest in pursuing CCUS in a, a variety of places. And uh, I just got back from a meeting in Houston where we were talking about Houston's uh, industrial emissions of CO2, which are very large because there's so much refinery and petrochemical operations down there. Right. Uh, so we're finding interest in these technologies and in policies that can incentivize reducing CO2, like in the new federal tax bill. Uh, there's a regulation called 45Q that gives incentives for projects to do just that, um, a big, big increase in interest. So I think your listeners should uh, be on the lookout for new technologies and new ideas and new activities going on that will uh, try to reduce our carbon footprint. Yeah, that's uh, that's fascinating. You know, there to to point people to a couple of resources. There was a recent National Academy of Sciences report on this topic. Um, there's also some pretty major initiatives at uh, universities and and think tanks around the country looking at uh, CCUS, or sometimes people call it carbon dioxide removal or CDR. So absolutely, we'll be we'll be checking that out. And looks like Alan's got smokestacks on the top of his reading stacks. So <laughs> thanks again, uh, Alan and Dan for joining us, telling us about your recent research and um, giving our listeners something else to look into. We really appreciate it. Great. Our pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us on Resources Radio. We'd love to hear what you think, so please rate us on iTunes or leave us a review. It helps us spread the word. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C., our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of Resources for the Future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. Resources Radio is produced by Kate Peterson, with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.